0: By God's grace, I hope this will be the, this first message in a series of messages about choices. The choices that we make. And this first message I've entitled simply, The Choice, Is It Real? You know, I have a little question for you. If you think about your life, just your whole life, and maybe it's a silly question, but I'll ask it anyway. If you think about your whole life, is your life more like a train car? Or is it more like a dune buggy? Now think about it for a minute. A train car runs on railroad tracks, okay? A dune buggy goes over the limitless sands of the sand dunes, right? Is your life more like a train car that runs down a straight track? Or is your more life more like a dune buggy that has a steering wheel and you can take it wherever you wish? Is our life? Is the course of our life laid out before we were born, or do we hold a steering wheel in our hands? You know, when I was a little kid, I thought the most frustrating thing in the world were those little toy cars. You know, kind of like you see them, like attached to the front of a shopping cart instead of the the um, putting the kids in the in the basket. You put them in this little pretend car that's in the front of the cart, and it's got a little steering wheel there. But the problem with that steering wheel is it's not attached to anything, so the kid can sit there all day long turning right, and it's going to go—he's going to go wherever mom or dad pushes him in that in that little shopping cart. I thought that was the most infuriating thing in the world—you you you weren't you weren't in control; you went wherever you were pushed. And I was thinking about that in our relation to our life. You know, we have a lot of choices that we make, or at least we think we make. And scientists and scholars have studied these choices that we make and, and, and tried to determine what are the causes of the choices that we make. What causes a, a, one child to grow up and succeed in life and another child grows up and, and gets caught in an eddy? Maybe they get caught in a, in a cycle of addiction or, or, or maybe our lives, so many of our lives and whole communities get caught in cycles of poverty where it seems like we cannot rise above a certain point economically. You know, when we look at the physical world, we see that the physical world around us is governed by fixed laws. Uh, Christina was talking this morning about the law of gravity, that that gravitation from the sun that pulls and and, and holds all of the planets in their orbit. Of course, we know that, it, that God's power is working through that, but it, we see physical laws, and we can observe them, and we can calculate them, and we can see perhaps the most obvious law that we can see and understand is what we would call the law of of cause and effect. You know, For we can say it this way, for every effect there is a definite cause, and likewise, for every cause there is a definite effect. We've kind of been ingrained with this way of thinking since we were little children, whether we learned to say it that way or not. We learned that if you drop something heavy, it's going to fall until it hits the floor, and when it hits the floor it's probably going to break or break something, right? We've learned these things, these laws of cause and effect, and it's ingrained in our way of thinking to where when we make our choices, every choice that we make it is, is is reasoned through with these thought of cause and effect. But then it begs the question, the choices that we make, are we really even making them? Or is there something pre-programmed down within us or perhaps in a metaphysical realm above us That predetermines the choices that we make before we make them. In other words, if we were to use a technical jargon, is the universe what we would call deterministic? That is, if you could measure every attribute of the universe at some given point in time, could you then, with a sophisticated simulator, predict exactly what would happen from this point on in the future? Or, or turn the clock back to determine how we, we got to this point from some point distant in the past and what the universe might have looked like eons ago. You know, we do this with the, with weather. Of course, we can't measure the weather conditions precisely, uh, exactly, but we can get close. And with weather satellites and with all of the sophisticated instruments, we can measure the, the, um, pressure and the, and the cloud cover and the moisture in the air and the temperature, and we can measure these things around the globe, and we can predict, well, I can't, but meteorologists, scientists, and computers can predict with fairly good accuracy the weather that's going to happen tomorrow or two or three or five or seven days from now, and we're getting really, really good at that. Now, of course, we're not really good at predicting what's going to happen three or six months from now, but we can, we can kind of predict using these sophisticated models. So if you could measure precisely enough, then could you predict the outcome, not just of the weather, but of the universe? If, in fact, the universe is deterministic, so to speak. But it begs the question though, if that is the case, if really everything that happens is the result of preset conditions, then what do we do with this notion that we call free choice? Is it only a little an illusion? Or is it, in fact, something that we have, an ability that has been created into us? You know, my, my background in training, as I alluded to a moment ago, is in computer technology. And computers, if anything, are designed to be machines that work on the principles of determinism. That is, we have a, a saying in computer, the computer world, garbage in, garbage out. You put the same input into a computer program, and no matter how many times you run it, it's going to give you exactly the same output. It is deterministic, and it is designed to be so. If a computer gives you different output on the same input, we throw the computer away. We say it doesn't work. <laughs> right? Scientists have spent a considerable amount of time studying physical systems. And through the laws of Newtonian physics, we've decided that the universe is deterministic. Except that now we not only look at the laws of Newtonian physics, which deal fairly well with uh, things that we can see and feel, but now we have instruments that can peer down into the properties of an individual atom, what we would call quantum physics. And when we get into the realm of quantum physics, the laws of determinism apparently break down. And, and some would say that this is because we can't measure precisely enough, and, and, and others would say that perhaps we've entered a realm in which the laws of determinism no longer hold. Now, I, I'm using a lot of technical jargon, but all this is to say scientists are still, still searching for the answer to this question. This question of, are we machines? Or do we, as human beings, have the freedom of choice? What is it that makes me a human being? One philosopher famously said, I think, and therefore I am. My ability to think and to reason, my self-awareness aware and my consciousness is what makes me me. It's what makes me different from my sophisticated computer. Now, a lot of scientists might argue that, well, you, you and I, we are just really highly sophisticated. And we don't really understand this concept of consciousness, but we're just highly sophisticated computers. And, and, and the decisions that we make are the results of chemicals that are in our brains or of circumstances that happened prior in our lives or perhaps the result of genes and, and the genetic makeup of our, of our bodies when we were born. And all of these factors go together to determine all of the choices that we make in life. Now, Greek philosophers kind of took a little bit of a different angle at it. They said that that you are made up of two things. You are made up of a body. That is the 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 organs and the tissue and the, the 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 physical thing that we can see. That's that's part of you. That's only half of you, but the other half of you is what we would call a soul. And a soul is different from you. The soul is actually the really you. Your body is just the thing that you live in. This is the Greek philosophy, and it's been kind of inherited into a lot of uh, our Christian uh, tradition, so to, so to speak, that there is this metaphysical being that we would call the soul. And the soul is that which is conscious and thinks and makes decisions and interacts with the spiritual realm, and a body is just that thing which we live in, and, and, and that... At, our, at the point when we die, only the body dies and the soul continues on to live and to have an existence even though it's not chained down, so to speak, in the body. That comes from a, a Greek philo- philosophical way of thinking, um, but it is it is uh, permeated a lot of Christianity as well. Now we can debate all of these different things and all these different concepts, and I'm being a little bit philosophical here, but I want us to get into the Bible because it as, as I read it, the Bible is really the only place where we can find true answers, amen? Where else can we find answers to some of these big questions and big problems in life? And what does the Bible say about who we are and the gifts that God has given to us? If you turn to Genesis chapter 2, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'm sure you know it by heart. It says in Genesis chapter 2, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You see, it is true that man is made of clay, of matter, of, of dust, so to speak, and something else, a breath that comes from God. This breath is this life force that we cannot explain in the material world. And I want to submit to you today, and we'll to go to a lot more texts, but I want to submit to you right here, that the breath that comes from God is that which gives us, yes, consciousness. Yes, the ability to live and move and actually, actually have life. But that that breath also includes a very special ability something that uh, perhaps comes from the world of the divine and is ability that we would call choice. The ability to impact the world independent of anything or anyone else. The ability to say, yes, I will do this or no, I will not do this. And on that choice hangs our future. And the future of those around us. An ability that even God himself, the sovereign God on his throne will not violate because he's given it to us. Because in the seed of that ability to choose is the seed of our ability to love. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but let me explain. What was the first thing that God said to Adam and Eve after he created them? Do you know what the very first thing that God said to Adam and Eve was? Genesis 2.16. And God okay, God, God put Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden, Garden of Eden. Notice what he says in Genesis 2.16 and 17. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Notice what he does. He says you can choose. Any tree you want. There's many trees in the garden. Choose any one you want, except one. The one tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it, because in the day you eat from it, you will die. Now, it would have seemed that a a loving and caring God would have have, um, put up a 12-foot chain-link fence around that tree with razor wire on the top. It would have been a lot safer for Adam and Eve in that garden because who's going to climb that 12-foot chain-link fence and go through the razor wire to get to a piece of fruit? But he didn't. The tree was standing here in the garden, presumably just like all of the others. They knew which tree it was. There was no mistaking it. But it looked good. The tree the, the tree looked good, and the fruit looked like it was something good to eat. And God gave them, in their hearts and in their minds, the ability to choose. Jesus says in John chapter 7 and verse 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own own authority. If we choose and desire to know God's will, God will reveal himself to us. And you know, even though God gives us the freedom to choose, he doesn't leave us entirely on our own. Even though God does not violate our freedom, God works through the circumstances in our lives to bring about good. Even circumstances that would seem utterly impossible. And that, I believe, is where we get to our scripture reading in in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, I don't know why I ended up having an accident with a chainsaw the other day. Cut my leg, and I'm limping around. Thankfully, I I praise God that it wasn't any worse than it was. Victoria, I don't know why you had an accident the other day driving down the road. We may never know the reasons. But I can claim God's promise and you can claim God's promise. He says, "We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose." But I think sometimes we sometimes we abuse this verse. Sometimes we take it out of context. Sometimes we take it to mean that no matter what we choose, we really don't have any choice at all. No matter what course we pursue, God will be glorified. Now, it is true in a sense that whether we choose to serve God or whether we choose not to serve him, God ultimately will be glorified. Amen? Pharaoh, for example, this is the classic example, Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. Now, some will will argue that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily preclude the fact that Pharaoh had a choice, okay? So that's a different study, but it kind of touches this one. Um, Pharaoh could have softened his heart, and like King Artaxerxes of Persia, granted the request of Moses to allow the children of Israel to go free, and God would have been glorified through that. And Pharaoh's life would have been spared. Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. And God, through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, was glorified. So God will be glorified whether you choose to serve him or whether you do not choose to serve him. But your destiny, the destiny and the future of your life, hangs on the choice that you make. Let me let me go on. And, and I'm going to get into these verses because really, uh, these verses are some of the most tricky verses for so many Christians we like to quote it Romans 8, 28, but then 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And this is exactly where so many Christians get confused on this concept of free will, because you see, if God has predestined us to be saved, then what can you do to be lost? Right. And therefore, if, if we look in the world and we see that there are many, many people who are who make no profession of God and who are living their lives as if there was no God, we must assume, based on this verse, this I'm, I'm following a line of argument here, so don't get, I'm getting to where I'm going. Okay, so don't don't quote me on this little spot. Okay. So they, they will they will say, if there's so many people in the world that obviously are lost, then therefore God if God has predestined some to be saved, he's predestined others to be lost. Therefore he's already made the choice for you. And if you are in the group that is predestined to be saved, you cannot help but be saved. And unfortunately, and we don't preach this so much, if you're in that group that's predestined to be lost, well, I'm sorry, but there's no hope for you. And that unfortunately, is the message that many Christians and even, yes, pastors are believing and teaching based on this verse, that you have no choice, that it's already been made up for you. Your fate is sealed. You are merely pawns in a game in which God, as the sovereign architect of the game, plays against each other, which, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, makes God into a really an evil monster, if you think about it. And uh, I dare say this concept has turned many, many sincere people away from the truth and away from Christianity and away from the Bible because this is the picture of God that is presented to them a God that would play two sides against each other, as it were. But notice what the verse says. This is all a kind of a line of logic that i've followed from one thought that god has predestined some to be saved and some to be lost but what did where did we find that god has predestined any to be lost in this verse we find we read here for whom he foreknow he predestined what to be lost no whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son where does it say any is predestined to be lost not in this verse But if you turn to John chapter 3 in verse 16. For God so loved who? The elect. For God so loved the called. For God so loved those that he loved. What does it say? Come on. The world. How many people are in the world? Everybody, yeah. (laughs) Seven billion people. Uh, How many people did God not love? Nobody. And I want to submit to you my friends that what Paul is saying here in this verse is not that God has predestined some to be saved and some to be lost but that God has predestined all to be saved. But because of our own choice some of us sadly choose to be lost. Another question is how does God know the future? It says he foreknew. How does he know what happens in the future? And if he knows what's going to happen in the future, how does that not affect his dealing with us in the present? Well, first of all, when I ask the question, I have to say, you know what? God is God. And we cannot limit God. Because if we could if we could limit God, if we could find him out, if we could understand exactly how he does everything that he does, then he wouldn't be God because he's so much bigger than us and there's no way that I can ever fully understand, nor would I, sh- nor should I even try to, for that matter. We understand what he has revealed to us right here in his word. And beyond what is revealed, there's much about God that I do not know and perhaps none of us will ever understand. But you know, when we say, yes, God knows the future, some people think, well, the only way that you can know the future is if everything is deterministic. In other words if God knows the choice that I'm going to make isn't that the same thing as God having made that choice for me No it's not God can know what choice you will make without him having made the choice for you Let me ask you this did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him Yes he did because he told he said so um uh, so many times, he said first he would, he would use coded language. He says, one of you is a devil. And then, then later on, later on, he's, he's until finally there at the Last Supper, he says, you, Judas, I mean, he didn't say it to him loudly. He, he, but he exposed him. He said, you have got a plan to betray me. And none of the other disciples knew. Jesus knew what choice Judas would make, even before he made it. And yet, did Jesus treat Judas any differently? Did Jesus give Judas any less privileges? because he knew that he was a traitor. No. And my friends, I believe that's the beauty of this verse. Because those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. My friends, you are a child of God. And you have a special privilege because God knew you even before you had any inkling that you would ever want to serve him. When you and I, like Paul, were running from God, were persecuting God, we're fighting against God, he knew us, and he knew what he would do through us. There's a lot of stories in the Bible, but I want to go to one more, and it's found in First Samuel. It's the story of Israel, Israel's first king. You know, before Israel had a king, Israel was ruled by a series of judges. These were men who, whom God had called, through his prophets, to lead Israel, to lead the armies, to judge right between right and wrong. But sadly, the people demanded to have a king. And God said, because the people are demanding a king, he says to Samuel, go and anoint a king. In 1 Samuel we read, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul, and there was not a more handsome person among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. God had chosen Saul, and though Saul was not always faithful to him, God had plans to use him to lead Israel. And even through Saul's unfaithfulness, God used Saul to teach Israel a lesson. But what kind of man was Saul? Was Saul bad to the core and God chose him knowing that he was bad? Or was Saul a man that God knew he could use, but Saul chose to turn against him? When Samuel told Saul that God had chosen him to lead Israel. Saul says, Am I not a Benjamite, of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you speak like this to me? Saul says, Who am I? He has this spirit of humility. And, and as, as he realizes that God has chosen him to be the king of Israel, he shrinks back in humility of heart. but sadly as Saul went through his life slowly his heart began to change of course you know when he was even when he was inaugurated the first when he was first inaugurated to be the king and there was a, there was this big um not an inauguration but a big public choosing a drawing of lots for the the tribe and the family to be chosen of who's going to be the king of Israel and Saul was chosen and he was nowhere to be found he went and hid himself because there was He was so humble. He didn't want to be put up, put forward. But in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. This is speaking of Saul. And all those things came to pass that day. And when they came to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet them. And the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. Saul was a prophet of God. He was filled with the Spirit of God. Saul was a changed man. Even though perhaps he had defects and flaws in his character, Saul was a man of God and he prophesied with the other prophets. but it wasn't until only a couple years later when Saul was leading the armies of Israel and, and he was in a crisis. And day by day, his army was deserting him and he was waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice. And finally he said, I'm the king. I can do this myself. I don't need God's prophet to be here. And he offered the sacrifice himself. And at that point, he chose to begin to turn away from god and little by little he turned back and turned back until by the end of his life we find him pursuing david like a madman we find him going to consult with a witch because he had destroyed all of god's prophets all of god's priests and we find him taking his own life as a coward because he chose to turn back from God. The Bible tells stories of those who have chosen to serve God and who have then later turned against him. It says in Ezekiel chapter thirty three and verse twelve The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. But I don't like to dwell on this. I don't like to dwell on those who've chosen to turn against God because there's even more stories of hope. Stories of those who have spent their lives fighting against God but then have turned to become God's best and most faithful servants. Stories like Saul of Tarsus who had spent years throwing Christians in prison and then turned to become the greatest apostle of the New Testament. stories of hope, stories of men and women who have chosen to be loyal to God. My friends, I want to submit to you today simply, yes, the choice is real. No, the course of our not lives is not fixed before us like a train track. It's an open field. And we hold a steering wheel in our hands. We can take it wherever we choose. But I f- I'm afraid to take that steering wheel myself. I'm afraid I'll mess it up. I'm afraid I'll get it stuck in a hole. I'm afraid I won't make it to my destination. But my friends, we don't have to hold that steering wheel alone. My friends, there is one who has come to this earth, who has gone through life like you and I, and has triumphed over the enemy. His name is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you today, my friends, to choose. To choose not to take the steering wheel of life into your own hand but to choose to yield up the driver's seat to one who will. To one who will pilot you the way you should go. As we read in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, And as for my house, we will serve the Lord. Our kind and loving Father in heaven, Lord, we want to be like Jesus. We want to serve you with every choice that we have. And help us, Lord, strengthen us, empower our choices to choose for you each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.